Chapter 5 of The Psychology of Alcoholism by George Barton Cuton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Will. The discussion of the will or volition is taken up for consideration next in order, because of the recognized importance of this faculty to our subject. No more common comment is made about the alcoholic, both by the careful psychologist and the unlearned observer, than that he has suffered a loss or decay of willpower. He continues to be an alcoholic on this account. We shall probably not be able to see the detailed relation between the abnormal will and the degenerate condition of the nerve elements that we were able to trace in the examination of the memory. Yet we trust that we can accept with some degree of probability, if not certainty, this account of the effect of the continued use of alcohol upon the will, which effect we will find to be of a degenerating character. The connection between mind and body, as far as will is concerned, is vague. Some would say impossible to find. If the will is the power of the mind, the true spiritual self, can we posit for it any dependence upon the brain at all? Does it not transcend the physical action of the molecules of the nerve cells? Is not this point where we can say that the mind rules in a despotic, unconditional manner? These and many other similar questions could be asked to all of which we must reply in the negative. Even if we affirm that we are dealing with the highest factor in man's nature, the most spiritual part, we must hold here, as elsewhere, the interdependence of the mind and the brain. We here meet the ever-present much discussed and misunderstood question of the freedom of the will, and notwithstanding its importance in other discussions, we wish to admit it here, even if we were able to throw any new light upon it. It is irrelevant in this treatment, and it is neither necessary nor pertinent to approach it, lest some implications might unwittingly or perhaps necessarily be introduced. It might be well to state that while the writer does not believe in the freedom of the will, because this phrase has become meaningless, he believes both from the standpoint of psychology and of ethics in the freedom of the self. We must inevitably have some opinion of the subject and work from that however much we may try to shun the question, and our discussion is unavoidably colored by our opinion. This much having been said, the subject, as far as we are concerned, is dropped. We then turn to examine the abnormal condition of the will of the alcoholic. Almost every writer on the subject of alcoholism deals with this mental degeneration, but usually in general statements. The purpose in this chapter is to investigate the matter with some detail. We shall find that the deviations from the normal are dependent on changed condition of the physical basis. This derangement appears very early in alcoholic degeneration, so early that some have placed it as the first symptom. Footnote A. Gustafson, The Foundation of Death, page 160, says, This power of will is the first stronghold to be attacked by alcoholism. If alcohol were a sentiment being, it would hardly act with greater apparent intelligence than it does in its insidious sapping and mining of the will, as if it knew that redoubt once carried no further resistance need be feared. In this subjugation of the will, alcohol incidentally, but very remarkably, defines the distinction between will and intention, so often mistaken for each other, to the moral shipwreck of the mistaking ones. In alcoholism, the will is destroyed. End footnote. The different faculties are so interrelated that it is difficult at times to affirm a chronological order, and as will is dependent upon the intellectual processes, it must follow them very closely in the order of deterioration. The loss or impairment of the will is best understood by comparison with the healthy and developed will, in addition to the description of the abnormality. In comparing the physical differences, we must also compare the brain elements showing the effect of alcohol on that part which we consider the basis of the will. What is the physical basis of the will? Do we find a will center? It does not seem so, and it is therefore necessary to disagree with those writers who posit a definite seat of voluntary movements. This occasion is differently conceived of as the corpora striata, the frontal lobes, or the outer layer of the cortex. This seems to be carrying the subject of specific localization too far. As we are able to find no special seat of the memory, so we cannot posit a special seat for the will. But as with the memory, the basis of the will is 
in the centers concerned with the special act. Thus we would say that the seat of will for the motor acts connected with the arm is in these motor centers of the arm movements, and not that a message comes from a seat of will in another portion of the brain commanding these centers to move the arm. The higher voluntary activities are characteristics of man, and because they are acquired to a greater extent than the actions of animals, any injury to the brain causes far more damage to man than to animals. We have seen that the acquired activities far less stable and more easily destroyed than the instinctive and reflex movements. And not only this, but the latest acquired and the most complex and highly developed activities are the first to suffer deterioration through injury. We must recognize the importance of the will in the mind of man, for it is in the controlling, guiding, enforcing, or inhibiting agency. It is the manly character of man. It is the last stage of evolution, especially with concern with moral conduct. It is the latest and highest product of social development, and as such being most complex, it is among the first activities to suffer injury and undergo dissolution according to the rule. Last to come is the first to go. First to go is the most to go. First to come is last to go. Last to go is least to go. Footnote, A.D. Waller, The Sense of Effort, in Objective Study, Brain, Volume 14, page 245. Further, to Maudsley, Body and Will, pages 273 forward, remarks, Nowhere is to be found a more miserable specimen of degeneration of moral feeling and impotence of will that is presented by the person who has become the abject slave of either of these pernicious indulgences, alcohol and opium. Alcohol entering the blood is carried by it to the most minute recesses of the brain and acts there injuriously upon the elements of the requisitely delicate structures. So its finest, latest, organized, least stable parts which subserve moral feelings and supreme will are marred. End footnote. In the decline of the motor apparatus of the alcoholic we find this order. Trouble starts with the voluntary movements of the hands while reflex movements are all right. Footnote. In speaking of the alcoholic, to Maudsley, Pathology of Mind, page 486, says, One cannot help feeling sometimes that he could grasp better and make more use of his legs if he would exercise more will. And footnote. The trouble continues with the arms, legs, tongue, and lips, the order being according to the volition necessary, until only the pure reflexes are left. In the mental expression of the will, the incapacity for sustained attention is one of the first symptoms of impairment of the mind, because the highest expression of will is the power of voluntarily holding the attention for a long continued period of time. Voluntary fatigue, as a temporary impairment of the mind, shows the same symptoms as some disorders of permanent nature, the fatigued nerve cells exhibiting chromatic phenomena analogous to those of alcoholism. It is found that the cell of higher function is relative to the amount of effort which it can produce, more exhaustible than the cell which is subordinate to it in the cerebromuscular chain, and the will, standing at the pinnacle of organization, is most seriously affected by injury. As the will develops through a certain course, we find it degenerate in inverse order until we have the very lowest form of movement. The will is developed by means of attempts at willing, and it degenerates as the volitional effort becomes more and more difficult. The very lack of attention by the phenomena habit works against the effort being made, and consequently the will is exerted less. As the will is the highest factor of self and comprehends all the other mental qualities and is dependent upon them, it is obvious that if any of these more fundamental faculties are destroyed or even impaired, it must inevitably affect the work of the will. This is not only true of the will in general, but as each separate volition is the expression of the whole self at the time, and thus of a hierarchical coordination, if any element in the coordination is paralyzed or destroyed, the whole system is thereby injured or entirely ruined. Footnote. T. Ribo, The Disease is of the Will, translated by Snell, page 120. H. Maudsley, Physiology of Mind, page 450, says, in addition, the loss of coordinating power of our ideas and feelings 
in their regular and independent reaction reveals the deterioration of the will. End footnote. We have already seen that in the alcoholics the memory is deficient, or at times almost totally lacking. This comes on in the early stages of alcoholism, and it in turn affects the will, for it is memory which makes the distinction between will and some lower forms of carnation. Instinct presupposes no memory. For example, real conscious memory, but will does, so it is very important in distinguishing factor of will. Perhaps the most important effect of the loss of memory to the will would be in the matter of ideals or ends. The mind in willing must have some end towards which it is working, but the end can only be before the mind through memory. If memory is lacking, we can not have the range of ideas or ends. The catalog of ideas must necessarily be shorter. As it becomes narrowed and more and more, the will is contracted until perhaps only one end comes before the mind, viz. that of being further affected by alcohol, and the will degenerates into an impulse which has only to be suggested to be gratified. Deliberation is impossible without memory, and for a complete and profitable deliberation, it is necessary to have an unimpeded association of ideas, so that the matter may be viewed from every standpoint related to the ideals and presented to the mind. This is necessary to give a valid expression of the self. In will that is unmotivated, where there is no deliberation, memory is still needed. Take, for example, a simple muscular movement. We must have the idea of that movement before we can perform it. These movements are first made reflexly or instinctively, yet consciously for us, and then by remembering them we are able to repeat them voluntarily. When movements, although reflex, have not made themselves felt above the threshold of consciousness, the idea of them is not known, and therefore cannot be remembered. Then the movements are never possible volitionally. Examples of such movements would be those of the intestines or blood vessels. With every movement, there must be the idea of the movement remembered, apart from the end in view. There must be a mental conception made up of memory images of certain sensations, defining a special act to be accomplished. Of course, we would not contend that every portion of the movement is remembered, but the series as a whole is recalled, and will stimulates the first number of the series, and association and habit finish the work. Thus, not even a simple muscular movement can be performed without memory as one of the chief factors. Dr. D. Hartley has gone so far as to say, all our voluntary powers are of the nature of memory. In morbid affections of the memory, the voluntary actions suffer a light change and imperfection. Agreeing with the last part of the quotation, the first part is undoubtedly too strongly stated, although containing an element of truth. In the chapter on memory, it was shown that the memory declined in inverse order to the reception of events. This means that in advanced cases, only memories of the younger years were retained, and as will is the matter of development, all the memories present would be those of undeveloped will. The ends set before the mind would be those of childhood, which may account for the puerile actions of the alcoholic. The memory of acts would be of like a period of time, so that we would naturally expect these also to be childish, just as in fact we find them to be. In speaking of the general degeneration of the mind and deterioration of memory, we have been treading familiar ground, and as the preceding discussion has shown these things to be facts, so in showing the relation of will to these in a general way, we feel sure that as our premises are true, so are our conclusions. Let us turn to another relation. We have already found that the intellect is deficient, and by showing the relation of will to the intellect, it will follow that will is lacking here. Footnote, by intellect here, we do not include the memory, for that has already been discussed. By judgment, reasoning, and cognition, etc. End footnote. While will and intellect are reciprocally dependent, we wish now to show only the dependence of the former on the latter. Will has been defined as an active and intelligent being acting intelligently. Spinoza has told us that the will and the intellect are one and the same thing. Both these expressions set forth the truth, but carry the idea of similarity to an extreme. 
The intellectual quality separates will from our cognitive phenomena. In volition, besides the use of the intellectual factor in deliberation, there is associated a judgment regarding the attainableness of what is desired. For unless we judge that we can secure what we want, we do not will it, but it remains a wish or a belief. Will is not creative, but only selective and modifying, and so rests on cognition. All choice is judgment put into execution, and any failure to will through hesitation comes from the defective character of the individual, in part on account of abnormal intellectual states. The value of the intellect to volition is further seen in the necessity of adapting means to ends to bring about the action desired. When we find the intellect weak, the impulses are correspondingly strong, and if not a loss, at least an impairment of will ensues. In the growth of the will, we may also see the great value of the intellect, for here there must be a certain development of ideas presupposed because the extension of will means the extension of ends to be attained. It has been said it is because the alcoholic does not recognize the fact that he is an alcoholic, that he does not will to stop, and as soon as he does realize that he has this enslaving habit, he discontinues the use of alcohol, thus laying the full responsibility of the continued destructive indulgence upon the intellect. This is only partially true. Many persons do know that they are alcoholics and deplore the fact bitterly, yet they are unable to use their wills to correct it. The dependence of will on intellect is very apparent, and knowing the latter to be impaired, it necessarily implies the weakness of the will. Let us turn now and in a few words examine the relation of the will to the affective side of life in the abnormal condition of alcoholism. The will depends as much on the feelings as on the intellectual states. Some would say more. The development of will is dependent on the growth of the feelings, for feelings increase desires. Pleasure, pain, and the emotions are springs of action. Not only do they increase the power of the will, but they may also weaken it, as example given in fear, anger, and remorse. In fact, the control of the feelings is the supreme test of the power of the will. In alcoholism, we find an exalted condition of the feelings of a certain kind. The feelings and emotions connected with the lower part of man's nature are exaggerated. These consist of the appetites and passions, which, when aroused, are so difficult to control. As the will grows weaker, we find them taking on more of an impulsive nature and controlling the actions of the alcoholic. And why this? We shall see later in the discussion that the feelings, too, are impaired in the inverse order of experience, and as the higher and more manly feelings come only with the developed nature, when these decline, we have left only the strong, unreasonable feelings connected with the lower centers, which are the last affected, and are of an instinctive nature, rooted and grounded in our very nature as animals. As these are the only feelings left, and as they are all of one kind, there is no strife of feelings, no higher feelings to assist in the control of the lower ones. These latter have all the strength of the affective nature and become so impulsive that the enfeebled will has no longer power over them. And after one or two impulses, successes, the way is made clear for an impulsive rather than a volitional rule. Having seen the effect upon the will of the degeneration of the mind as a whole, the memory, intellect, and affective nature we now turn to the special factors of the will and notice the effect of the use of alcohol upon them. Will is distinguished from the lower cognitive activities by a conscious end to be attained. This is impossible with the alcoholic, not because there is any particular physical basis for ends, and this is destroyed. But as we have already seen, through the deterioration of the intellectual qualities, without ideas there is no will. In deliberation, the alcoholic is especially weak. If he could deliberate, there would be more hope for him, but the control of thoughts is largely lost. He has no ends to set before himself, and all forms of thought concerning any end which may be presented to him lead to the one end or impulse, that of gratification of appetite. Could he calmly think in a deliberate way? His passion might have time to subside, 
and give him more of an opportunity to have ideals come before his mind. It requires an active will to deliberate, and being unable to voluntarily attend, deliberation is conspicuously absent in the life of the alcoholic. The power of attention is very necessary to all normal acts of life. In such simple acts as that of sight, it requires fixed attention for clear vision, and accommodation follows. In all higher acts of life, the necessity for attention is still greater, and any diminution is disastrous to voluntary mental experiences. This lack of control of feelings, impulses, and all mechanical activity is the keynote of the alcoholic's condition as far as will is concerned. It seems to be a special attribute of alcohol to exalt the mechanical activity of the mind, and at the same time, the power of the volitional control is diminished. This is true, not only as far as they are compared with each other, but absolutely. Coleridge is pointed out as a standard example of this effect. In his late years, he had little or no control as far as voluntary attention was concerned. His ideas rambled over the whole universe with no recognizable thread of unity. The whole stimulation seemed to be physical and impulsive. We must recognize that the lack of control is due more to the absence of inhibition than to the exaltation of the impulses. Impulses are always strong in the healthy will, but usually under good control where the individual can say, this far no further, but if the inhibition falters, it is fatal for future volition and control. Footnote, for a comprehensive description of inhibition, see S.J. Meltzer. The role of inhibition in normal and in some of the pathological phenomena of life. Medical record, June 7, 1902. The nature of the impulses must be taken into account. The control develops into the following order, muscular feelings and ideas. In degeneration, the control of ideas goes first, then the control of feelings. We can see that the most important control is first lost. And when one comes to lose control of ideas and feelings, he is a mere machine. With the control of feelings lacking the mind, deficient in concentrative power, is lamentably deranged by any kind of emotional excitement, so far as any volitional effort is concerned. Muscular control is also frequently lacking, and one form of this, tremor, we find as a common symptom in the first stages of alcoholism. This is especially seen in the hands, about the mouth, in the lips, and tongue. This loss of control and exaltation of the impulsive nature may be divided into two classes. First, those who are unconsciously in this condition, and second, those who are consciously afflicted. The latter division corresponds with those who have what we call fixed ideas. There are many alcoholics of the first class, those who can drink or leave it alone, but usually drink, those who can stop drinking whenever they want to, but never want to, men who are actually self-deceived. They drink not because they are impelled to, but because they are hot or cold, fortunate or unfortunate, sleepy or insomnious. It matters not what reason is given. It is sufficient oftentimes to satisfy the affected mind of the alcoholic, even if it is unreasonable and incredible to his friends. In these cases, the impulse is sudden and unconsciously followed by execution. The alcoholic does not think of resisting the impulse until it is too late. And then, if questioned concerning the reason why, an excuse is presented, which is reason at least to him. These impulses fit into the lower nature and are thus natural to him. It is similar to a certain idea which comes into consciousness corresponding to the higher self and will, and is frequently not distinguished. The character of the impulse will depend largely on the constitutional tendencies of the individual derived from inheritance and modified by his conditions of life prior to alcoholic excesses, and the effect of alcohol upon him mentally and physically. It is thus independent of will in persons whose control is impaired. Another reason why it is confounded with will is because it is internally stimulated. Although the occasion is not unusually an external stimulation, which it either immediately furthers or inhibits, Thus, the alcoholic recognizes the contents of a bottle of whiskey, or the building near which he is standing as a saloon. These are occasions for the arising 
of an unconquerable thirst in the form of an impulse, which is immediately gratified. This impulse has a double reason for its force. Not only is it an object of appetite, which normally is most impulsive, but it is also an object of habit, which apart from all appetite or passion gives a certain impulsive nature to acts within its power. Footnote. N. Kerr, in a breedy, page 302, sets forth the hypothesis of an appetite center in the brain, which is deranged by the effects of alcohol. End footnote. Whenever we find such a case, we find also an absence of social and moral considerations which should provide motives and reasons to the controlling, inhibiting power, so that the idea does not come into relation with the whole self which the will requires, but action follows the isolated tendencies. There is not here even a conflict of impulsive tendencies. One impulse has the whole field and keeps it. In the first class, the impulse is unconscious, and deliberation is annihilated. But in the second class of cases, where we have what we are called fixed ideas, there may be some deliberation, but of an external character, and with a conclusion which is inevitable because of a lack of control. When the impulses are strong, but are not entirely beyond control, a partial direction and inhibition may be secured. An impulse of this kind might be called an insistent idea, in contradistinction from a fixed idea. In the first stages of alcoholism this is common, but later the impulse consciously gets beyond the power of the will. Footnote. C. E. Cowles, Insistent and Fixed Ideas, American Journal of Psychology, Volume 1, pages 226 forward. In regard to this class of alcoholics, A. MacDonald, Abnormal Man, page 113 says, there is a weakness of will to carry out good resolutions, and a consciousness of this leads some to request to be placed in asylums, for they are morally certain in advance that they cannot resist temptation. Thus one has been known to have his daughter carry his wages home, as he could not pass a saloon on the way without going in, if he had any money with him. We have also the following from C.F. Palmer, in a Brady, its source, Prevention and Cure, page 107. Coupled with the loss of truthfulness is that weakening of the will which always accompanies chronic alcoholism. How many of his broken promises are due to a debilitated will, and how many to a decay of his voraciousness? It would be impossible for the victim himself to determine. Doubtless, his intention to break off his evil habit is sometimes honest, and the failure is due to the paralysis of the will. End footnote. What is seen here is the demand for attention in proportion to the insistence of the idea, until finally the alcoholic cannot possibly withhold his attention from the one absorbing idea. Viz. that of further indulgence and its consequent effect, which soon gains dominance in consciousness, and is quickly acted upon. The most normal person cannot prevent feelings and impulses from arising, nor can he say, be gone, and be immediately obeyed but he can direct his attention to other things and thus escape. This the alcoholic cannot do well. Sometimes the alcoholic is a slave to this impulsive idea. He develops a true mania, as much as any monomaniac. The mania has been called dipsomania, and is irresistible when fully developed. It is but an extension of common experience. Consciously we are carried away by some impulse. It may be in regard to a small, unimportant thing, and are unable to control our course. Stout gives the following statements regarding the reasons for indulgence. He says that the commonest cases of involuntary action are those in which an idea becomes fixed through intense appetite or craving, arising from organic conditions. An example given, irresistible craving for alcohol. There are four possible situations. One, indulgence in the drink may be contrary to the man's expressed volition at the moment when he drinks. This is rare. 2. A performed resolution to refrain from action. But at the moment when he drinks, the impulse is so strong that the volition is temporary in abeyance. 3. Action takes place before a voluntary decision has taken place. He acts during deliberation before he knows his mind. 4. Organic craving may be the motive of a genuine volition, but so against his interest, the real self, as to be involuntary. Here there is full deliberation. 
Footnote. Notice also the following from W. B. Carpenter. Mental Physiology, pages 636 forward. The debasing influence of the continued alcoholic excess is, unfortunately, but too apparent. While weakening the will and exciting the lower propensities, it blunts the moral sense also. Vain is it to recall the motive for a better course of conduct. To one who is already familiar with them all, but is destitute of the will to act upon them. End footnote. The first of these four divisions seems out of the range of possibility. He may not intend to get intoxicated. He probably does not once in a hundred times. But as for not willing to take that drink at the moment when he does so, this seems to contradict all psychology of the will. He may not have intended to drink the preceding moment, but how does he do so against distinct volition? There is no true volition in impulsive action. The other three examples are pertinent and agree with what is said above regarding impulse. Footnote. Kerr, in Ebridy, pages 302 forward, says, Serious as the injuries inflicted by intoxicants on the intellectual faculties, the loss of inhibitive capacity is a hundredfold more more detrimental. To these must be added the progressive paralysis of the will. The damage done to the understanding is great, but infinitely more terrible are the decrease of control and the benumbing of volition. Many inebriates, as long as they retain consciousness through all their outbreaks, know what they are doing, hate with a perfect hatred their drunken excesses, but are as unable to exert their will as is a terror-stricken animal helpless under the fascination of a boa constrictor. Their moral faculties are even more deadened by the poison than their intellectual. Alcohol is a poison will paralyzer. Such an inebriate is a captive. Retaining the possession of his senses, though these are somewhat dulled, and the will is powerless to make an effort at deliverance. Again and again does he resolve to drink no more, but resolution is overborne by the dominating drink impulse or drink crave. The volitional disablement, this palsy of the will, is a direct effect of a pathological degradation. End footnote. We have discussed this subject of self-control under the head of deliberation. For self-control means deliberation and inhibition of impulsive action in order to deliberate. Two aspects of self-control have been discussed. These increased power of impulse and decreased power of will. These have been figuratively expressed as follows. The driver may be so weak that he cannot control well-broken horses, or the horse may be so hard-mouthed that no driver can pull them up. With the alcoholic, it may be both. The power of self-control varies with the nervous force. Fatigue, loss of vigor through overexertion, and ill health cause noticeable loss of self-control. The decline of self-control is one of the earliest symptoms of oncoming senile decay and of mental disease. We have before stated that the effects of alcoholism were those of premature senility, and here we have another application of the statement. We can all recognize how the exhaustion of nervous energy lessens inhibitory power in the matter of irritability. When fresh and healthy, we are invariably good-natured, but the tired, overexerted, unhealthy man is very easily irritated and not infrequently the slightest occasion will throw him into an incontrollable passion. We have clearly seen in discussing the physiology that the nervous energy is lessened and continues to be decreased more and more as the blood vessels are more clogged and are unable to convey nourishment to the brain, and any lack of nourishment affects the higher and latter developed nerve centers, these being less stable than the lower. In control, as in memory, the alcoholic becomes a child, and his natural tendencies are let loose. As the child and the savage are creatures of impulse to a great extent, so we find the alcoholic. Thus we have the saying concerning him, What a man is when he is sober will come out when he is drunk. Because of this utter lack of control, we were able to show when dealing with memory that association, depending upon the connection between the different cells and centers, was interfered with on the account of this connection being destroyed or injured. If will means control, it is through the coordination of all the centers in just proportion to their importance. This, we can see, is impossible if the connection is imperfect. Take an alcoholic 
as we find him, there seems to be a total incapacity for deliberation in his degenerative mental condition. A few words will be sufficient to deal with the two factors of the fully developed will, viz. choice and desire. It is enough to say of the former that without deliberation we cannot have choice, for deliberation is its sin qui non. In regard to desire, we either have too much or none at all, according to the standpoint from which we look at it. In the description given above, we might say that the desire is all that there is, but impulse is not desire in its highest form. Desire should suppose a choice, or normal mind, taking a liking to something which agrees with and fits into the whole self. In alcoholism, only one part of the self is considered, so whether we take the view of too much or too little desire, we recognize it as abnormal. If we were able to will, it would lead us astray, for a normal desire could not be carried out. We now turn to the factor par excellence of the will, viz. effort. If a reform is ever to take place in the alcoholic, it must be through effort. If there should be a real desire for departure from alcoholic influence, it requires a great effort to overcome the habit and impulse. And in his weakened condition, the alcoholic cannot well put this forth. Even in normal conditions are will flags and cannot be brought to do what we would like and what we know to be right. If all the faculties were normal except the will, the defect would be very apparent and serious. The term abulia is used for cases of this kind. Footnote. We have the following from E.C. Pitska, Insanity, page 251 forward. The inebriate generally exhibits above all a marked enfeeblement of the will. This enfeeblement of the will is at first manifested in the inability of the inebriate to resist the temptation to drink. Numerous cases are on record where prosperous businessmen and capable men of letters, feeling this abulia, voluntarily went to an asylum for inebriates, and within its walls carried on their labors as well as before they had formed the alcoholic habit. But with the continuance of vice, the volition becomes impaired with regard to other matters as well, and the confirmed and deteriorating inebriate becomes the tool of others. He attends fairly well to duties of a routine character, but is devoid of initiative, or, if he has it, is inconstant and easily diverted from his purpose. And footnote. How many drunkards there are who have all the inducements of a good home, a healthy body, a moral life, etc., for a reward of abstinence, who admit all the arguments brought forth, who recognize their duty in the matter, and yet are not able to make the effort. Sometimes the alcoholic claims a great desire for reform life, yet tells you frankly that he has not the strength to try, and knows that he cannot reform if he does try. A gentleman of high standing and eminence in his profession was brought to the writer for help by his clergyman. He said that he wanted to get rid of alcohol. He recognized the danger, saw the effects, but lacked power to stop. He concluded by saying, I'll be honest though, if there were a glass of whiskey on the table here, as much as I want to stop and know that I should stop for my own sake and that of my family, I would drink it. Examples of this kind could be enumerated without limit. One more will be given. A gentleman prominent on two continents in his profession applied for assistance to the writer. He wanted to stop drinking. It was ruining him for his work. He spoke freely concerning the injury to himself and family, and with tears in his eyes begged for help, but he was unable to make any effort himself in that direction. He would often not even make the effort to come for treatment, notwithstanding his longing for relief. He died at an early age from the effects of alcoholic excess. One of the frequent delusions of the alcoholic is that he has the ability to stop drinking any time he wishes to. The delusion of free will is very common and seems to be a part of the disease. He seldom thinks that he cannot stop, but for some other reason he continues to drink. This delusion of being able to will to stop at any time is encouraged by friends who also believe it to be true and condemn the patient for failure to carry it out. If the work of the person has been carried on for some time by reflexes and impulses, the will does become impotent, especially against strong habits. If a single effort is hard, a continued effort is correspondingly difficult. This is why reform is so difficult to attain, 
An alcoholic holding an article in his hand, example given, a ball or a jug, will often drop it if he is not fixing his attention on it. The motor brain cells seem to require continuous reinforcement to act for any length of time, there not being sufficient reinforcement in the alcoholic's brain to stop spontaneously. He must force the process by continued attention, and even then prolonged action is impossible for him. A steadily kept resolution is a great manifestation of nervous force, the neural correlation of which is a prolonged tension of one and the same group of cortical elements. If the resolution does not last, and in the alcoholic it is often broken in an hour, it is because there is not in his organism the possibility of repeated work and the centers concerned with the volitional effort. Footnote. T. Ribo, The Diseases of the Will, translated by Snell, page 53. Notice also the following from I. Ray, Medical Jurisprudence, page 543. The mind of the inebriate is incapable of long-continued efforts which once were easy, and of concentrating the whole force of its faculties on the subject submitted to its examination. End footnote. It is this steadiness or firmness of will which is the essence of will. The physical condition of effort is that of fullness of energy, ready to overflow and a free passage of good blood from one part of the brain to the others. One can well see that the condition of the nervous elements in the brain, pointed out in the discussion of physiology, would seriously interfere with the function of the centers, which are the physical basis of will. On account of the highly developed system which will supposes, the cells could not be in the state of decay and degeneration described without making impossible any delicate movements, such as we must suppose occur in the changes which take place during the performance of acts of will. Not only the degeneration, but the pressure and mishapping due to crowding on account of the pathological growth of connective tissue in the brain must seriously interfere with the process. Footnote. J. F. Leidson, in writing on toxemias and their relation to alcoholism, etc., says, In all cases of inebriety, there is primarily a weakened willpower incidental to unstable nerve equilibrium. This may be due to acquired organic disease or to heredity, or may be peculiar to the individual himself and bear no relation to heredity or disease. Its recognition is important if we would cure the disease. It certainly should be considered in studying the general relation of alcoholism to crime, for it is key to the situation. And footnote. But the basis of all is the blood. On account of the bone receptacle in which the brain is enclosed, the mass of cerebral material must be constant. It is therefore impossible for any great amount of blood to enter or leave the brain very quickly. For the only other element of changeable quantity in the brain is the spinal fluid, which cannot flow quickly and is small in quantity compared to the blood. If one part of the brain requires more blood hurriedly, the other portions must give up their supply. In willing a certain part to function and in putting forth effort in connection with a certain movement, more blood is required in the centers concerned with the movement, and the other parts are anemic on account of their sacrifice to the centers functioning. This puts all the effort of the mind upon one portion of the brain, which alone is in a condition for work. We know that attention has the effect of drawing blood to the organs to which we are attending, and that will works largely through the means of voluntary attention. As it is with other parts of the body, so we may expect it to be with the centers of the brain. When attended to, more blood is drawn to them and taken from the neglected parts, making the centers on which attention is concentrated more explosive and the discharge in their direction is more easily made. In the alcoholic brain, the mobility of the blood is seriously impaired so that it cannot quickly move from one center to another, and hence will as a whole and especially effort is retarded. The centers, the least used, become less easily hyperemic, while the blood more easily flows to the centers of habitual action. It is also necessary for the blood to contain nourishment to sustain nervous energy and keep the cells intact. It must be free from any injurious matter and come in normal quantities. The affete matter must also be taken away, so as not to interfere with the metabolism. But none of these conditions do we find adequately fulfilled in the alcoholic brain, and notwithstanding our inability to define the exact molecular change which takes place in the individual cell as the concomitant of the effort of will. 
We can undoubtedly say that these pathological changes do interfere to prevent these molecular changes, so that no effort of will can be made on account of the physical disability. Footnote. W. B. Carpenter, Mental Physiology, pages 636 forward. Speaking concerning the relation of will to physical conditions as follows. There is no class of abnormal phenomena which is more deserving of careful scientific study than that which is produced by the introduction into the blood of substances, which have the special property of perverting its normal action on the brain. For in the first place, these phenomena bring into strong relief the contrast between the augmented augmatic activity of cerebrum, which manifests itself in the rapid succession of thoughts, the vividness of images, and the strong excitement of feelings, and the diminished volitional control of which we have the evidence in the incoherence of thought, the incongruity of the imagery creations, and the extravagance of feelings. And in the second place, it is perfectly clear that this disturbance of purely psychical action affecting not merely what may be regarded as the functions of the brain, but the exercise of that attribute of man's nature, which seems most strongly indicative of a power beyond and above it, is produced by agencies purely physical. For it is not only that the balance between the automatic activity of the brain and the directing and controlling power of the will is disturbed by the exaltation of the former, so as to give it a predominance over the latter, on the contrary, the absolute weakening of volitional control is clearly a primary effect of these agencies, being strongly manifested when the automatic activity, as often happens, is reduced, as when it is augmented. And this weakening is still more obvious when not merely the quality of the blood, but the nutrition of the brain has been deteriorated by the prolonged action of nervine stimulants, the will becoming, as it were, paralyzed, so that the mental powers are not under its command for any exertion whatever, while even its controlling power over bodily movements may be greatly diminished. End footnote. Several references have been made in this chapter to the effect produced on the will by fatigue, which shows how a lessened nervous energy causes an impotence of will. Let us consider this further. Remember the histological similarity between fatigue and alcoholic cells. In fatigue, a periodicity of speed is noticeable involuntary actions, which is generally agreed to be due, not to peripheral or muscular, so much as to central fatigue. This is true whether the action is voluntary muscular contraction, such as tapping upon a telegraph key, more purely mental work, such as adding long columns of figures, or voluntary attention, such as listening to a watch placed at such a distance that the ticking can just be heard. The periodicity is not the only phenomena, but finally, sooner or later, according to the individual, the overexerted centers refuse to respond at all. This may be seen in experiments with the ergograph, of which examples will be shown. The reason for this failure is not simply because the subject refuses to work on account of pain, but he is positively unable to make an effort. And the time comes when, regardless of the motive, whether physical or mental, example given, pain or fear, there will not be a single contraction in response to the effort. In some experiments made on persons who were deprived of sleep for 90 hours, was found that the voluntary motor inability decreased in waves, according to the time of day and the length of time awake. In some other experiments with tapping, a walk which fatigued the person generally made the voluntary movement slower. And in experiments in control of the reflex wink, the control was lessened after long continued work at the desk. Thus we find in pathological conditions, when a person is weakened by brooding over troubles, he has not strength of will to resist the brooding. But if health can be restored so that the cells have their normal supply of energy, he can turn his attention to other things. The repair of willpower comes through nutrition, while conversely, loss of will is short when the nervous force is lowered. Volition implies an intensive discharge of the nervous elements along a certain definite self-resolved line. In order to accomplish this, every cell must be so nourished as to be explosive when the impulse comes to it. The fatigued and alcoholic cells are not in this condition. Some of the aches and disagreeable feelings about the body, and principally in the head, causing worry and anxiety, the alcoholic is able at first to control by will 
but later he loses power to do so, and, then, and they become subjects of delusions. Kraepelin has shown directly that alcohol causes a slower reaction time for discrimination and decision. These statements concerning general fatigue show what we have contended all through this chapter, viz. that a loss of nervous energy affects will, and these experiments regarding voluntary movements, etc., show one of two things. While the voluntary movements of the finger, for example, are inhibited, we are able to will concerning other things. It must be either that the will has a definite seat, and we do will, but the connection between the will centers and these particular motor centers is temporarily incapacitated, or that the physical basis for will is in the motor center concerned with each movement, and as the nervous force of the center is exhausted, the will is correspondingly impaired. It is needless to say that we accept the second hypothesis. Some experiments made by the writer in the Yale Psychological Laboratory show the weakness and peculiarities of the will of the alcoholic probably better than anything else we could say in a purely descriptive way. The apparatus used was that usually employed in registering tap time. A telegraph key furnished the means of breaking a four-amp current, which passed through the primary coil of a spark coil. The secondary circuit of the spark coil was connected at one pole with a 100 VD fork used as a marker, and at the other pole with the base of the recording drum. Every tap on the key was registered by a spark on the waving line drawn by the fork on the drum. The subject was seated at a table in an easy position and told to tap as fast as possible until told to stop. A record was taken of the taps for five seconds at the start and thereafter not continuously, but for the same length of time at the beginning of every 30 seconds. Usually before the records were finished, the subject was told emphatically, now tap just as fast as you possibly can. One record was generally taken after this. Most of the alcoholic subjects were secured through the kindness of Mr. P.C. Butterfield, superintendent of Calvary Industrial Home of New Haven. With the exception of one, all the alcoholic subjects were sober and had been so for periods ranging from a month to over a year. With one exception, J.C., they were all mechanics or laborers, persons who worked with their hands. The normals also, with the exception of F.W.M., were of the same walk of life. All the subjects, both alcoholics and normals, were males. Three of the subjects, two alcoholics and one normal, TD, MT, and AF, were not required to spurt, but these records are inserted to show the steady decline in both the average and probable error when no spurt was called for. One other, that of D, is excluded from the comparisons on account of his being under the influence of alcohol at the time of the experiment. Let us now look at the comparison between the alcoholics and the normals. The advantage is obviously with the normals, but as we would expect, does not show itself so much with the younger as with the older men. The ability to will is shown by the decreased average tap time when called upon to spurt, while the probable error is an index of uncertainty, for example, lack of control. Compare the two youngest subjects, F, alcoholic, age 29, and WP, Normal, age 35. Both spur at command, but while WP lowers the average from 179 to 114, a decrease of 65, F, who has the advantage of age, decreases from 213 to 205, a difference of only 8. In this effort, we also observe a difference in control. During the spurt, WP lowers the probable error from 1.2 to 0.8 while F, the uncertainty is increased from 0.9 to 1.5. Both of these men were healthy, strong, and intelligent, in every way comparable, but F had been drinking since he was 14 years of age, and when 25 was not able to control himself. WP had lived his 33 years without touching liquor. The results of the experiments clearly show the lack of effort and control in the alcoholic. Look further at the rapidity of voluntary movements. The alcoholic's general average is 202. The sober man averages 163, which is a direct contradiction of the results as we would expect them if the two men were judged by their temperaments. Let us look at others. Take two very much alike, DF, alcoholic, and FWM, normal. They were both 39 years of age, and their general average was about the same. 
DF being 184 and FWMs 183. Their averages kept along very near together, and when called upon, both spurted about the same, and 30 seconds later the fatigue was about the same. Only one difference of importance is noticed, and that is in the probable error to the disadvantage of the alcoholic. During the spurt, FWM's probable error decreased from 1.4 to 0.9, and 39 seconds later had risen to 1.1. But concerning the alcoholic, we observe that during the time of the spurt, his probable error increased from 1.2 to 1.5, and 30 seconds later it rose to 3.0, showing a great lack of control and stability. The older men show a more striking difference. The two oldest alcoholics we have, CC and JC, are 54 and 55 years of age, respectively. The oldest normals, WE and MP, are 61 and 70 years old. Notwithstanding the greatest difference of age, when a few years count so much, the normals make a much better showing. CC, when called upon, fails to spurt at all, but the time has increased from 203 to 217, and the fruitless effort causes the probable error to rise from 1.4 to 3.0. Here we have a total lack of will power exhibited, and with it a great decrease in control. In the case of JC, we have a spurt, but a very great increase in probable error from 0.6 to 3.0, and 30 seconds later the probable error rises to 5.4. In the normals, both WE and MP spurt, the latter, let us consider, being respectively 16 and 15 years older than the alcoholics. With WE, the probable error decreases from 0.9 to 0.8, and after 30 seconds is only 1.0. MP's probable error increases slightly from 1.2 to 1.4, but 30 seconds later is down to 1.1, a marked difference from that of JC or CC. Something further very noticeable here in the former experiments is the way in which the normals keep up their spurt into the next 30 seconds but the alcoholics fall again. For the normals, WP gives us the best record in this respect. He averages 192 when asked to spurt, and immediately decreases the average to 157, and 30 seconds later is still lower, being 137. JC, alcoholic, gives us the example for the other extreme. Before the spurt, he was at 190. He spurted to 166, and 30 seconds later was at 194, higher than before he spurted. Take this out of the language of the psychological laboratory. Translate it into a practical case, and what does it mean? The alcoholic is spurted to put forth will in some form. It may be to make and keep a resolution. He makes it, but while he starts well, he is unable to keep it for any time, and before long he is less powerful, as far as will is concerned, than he was before the resolution was made. With the normal, it is not so, but he continues to exercise his will. It may even get stronger than before the resolution was made, but is not likely to get weaker. Although it does not directly come under our subject, it is interesting in passing to notice the one case of acute alcoholism of which we have record, that of D. His average is very large. He is not capable of making repeated voluntary efforts very quickly, and, as we would suppose, his control is very weak. His smallest probable error is equal to the largest probable error which we are able to find among all the others. Viz 5.6, while it goes up to the enormous figure of 16.6. Under the influence of alcohol, he is able to spurt, going from 253 to 221, with a decrease in probable error from 12 to 9.0, but it does not last. 30 seconds later, his average is higher than it was before, 268, and the probable error has risen to 14.7. His case will be referred to later. Another form of experiment was tried with the same subjects, and in designation the same initials will be used. In this, the subjects were tested with the Maso ergograph. Each one was seated comfortably, with his arm resting upon a board to which was strapped. The tape was fastened around his middle finger, and in a given signal he was told to pull as far as he could to the beat of a sounder, which was connected electrically with a clock marking off the seconds. The weight used was 3 kilograms. Each movement of the weight was recorded on a drum by means of the ergograph pointer.
very much the same results were obtained as with the tap time experiments. We reproduce a few of the records made. In figure 12, the drum was running more rapidly than in the latter records, yet it has the advantage of giving better details. After the subject had been at work long enough to show a considerable shortening of the exertions of the pointer due to fatigue, an effort was made to increase the length of the exertion by saying, Now pull harder, do your best. This corresponds to the spurt and tap time records. The vertical arrows point to the places where the spurt was ordered. In this record we see an utter lack of any increase. The weight is not pulled one bit higher, and TD, alcoholic, is apparently not able to put forth any more effort. In the tap time experiments he was not spurted, but this record shows the most clearly of any example of the ergograph experiments. The lack of will, for example, power to put forth effort. In figure 13 we have an example of lack of power after a short test. J.C., alcoholic, was not able to move the weight when called upon to spurt. The pointer had made 80 excursions in all, after which he could not move his finger. Compare this with the record of MP, figure 14. MP is normal. It's 15 years, J.C. Sr., and although we notice that he misses one stroke, yet he recovers himself without suggestion at the next stroke. When commanded to spurt, does so. Only twice does he miss a stroke in his whole record, both times recovering himself well, and at the end of 155 strokes is still able to respond strongly. It is difficult to tell whether or not MC, alcoholic, spurts here when commanded. True, the weight is raised, but it corresponds to the regular rhythm of fatigue and recovery. Probably we can credit him with a small spurt, but it is very small indeed compared with his record when he first began this experiment. The first part of this record is not shown. In the record of F, alcoholic, figure 16, we can notice where his finger was powerless for three or four strokes, and in two other places where he was unable to relax his finger, showing a lack of control in both ways. At command he spurted, but lost time in doing so, taking the time of about two regular strokes to make the effort, showing that he could not readily control his power or that there was no power immediately available. The record of CC, alcoholic, is quite like that of F. He spurts but loses time in the effort. Twice after that he is not able to relax his finger, and finally he becomes powerless. He is unable to move his finger at 65 strokes. Compare this record with that of MP. The latter was pulling strongly at the end of 155 strokes. And this man, 15 years younger, was powerless at the end of 65 strokes. Compare these two alcoholics, CC and JC, with MP, normal. And we will see the advantage that an abstemious old man has over a middle-aged alcoholic. We also insert the record of D, who was intoxicated at the time it was taken. But this is not for comparison. The two following records, figure 19 and 20, are examples of normals, and the spurts by which they responded when commanded. By looking over the results of these experiments, we can see how they substantiate what has been said in the descriptive part of this chapter. Both in the results of the tap time investigations and those of the ergograph, we find the alcoholic much inferior to the normal in his command and control of himself, and lacking in ability to put forth effort. The tapping and the ergograph give slightly different results, for the work is different. The tapping is very light work, and only the repeated efforts fatigue one, but lifting three kilograms with one finger is very tiring. Notwithstanding this, the results are quite in agreement. These alcoholic subjects were far from being of the most affected class, for these men had remained sober for some time, none less than one month. It might have been more interesting if the worst class could have been obtained, but as this lowest class is always more or less under the influence of alcohol, the task of arising at the effect of the continued use of alcohol would have been defeated, and we would have records on the effect of the continued use. Added to that of the acute effects, depending upon the amount of alcohol recently taken, we feel that the testimony given by these witnesses has been quite conclusive. We found that the lack of will to be a serious result of the use of alcohol, not only as a whole, 
but all the factors of will are injured. The alcoholic is devoid of the power to act at the proper time and in the right way, no matter how much he may admit such action to be correct. On the other hand, he is equally powerless to inhibit incorrect action, which is in line with his alcoholic craving. He has the delusion of free will, and thinks he can stop drinking if he wishes, but on account of a lack of nervous energy, he has not the ability for sustained effort. The blood supply has a powerful influence on the will. The experiments with ergograph and tap time prove graphically what has been so long contended, viz. that the alcoholic has lost the power of putting forth effort. End of chapter 5